0: Today, I have uh, the pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. David Rowe. So uh, this is from memory because David and I go pretty far back now. Uh, David completed his uh, neurology residency at the University of Miami, uh, followed by a fellowship in neurocritical care at the Columbia Cornell Program, where he has uh, stayed on as faculty, um, is now assistant professor of neurology. And uh, David, as a fellow, uh, developed some might say an obsession, I would say an interest, (laughs) um, in, uh, Rotem, uh, which was really a project he picked up from another fellow who, who didn't finish that work, who kind of was interested in it and, uh, never really saw it to fruition. And, And David is someone who sees things to fruition and he's really made it his career, um, and has, uh, obtained, uh, multiple grants, uh, to look at, uh, coagulation and clotting in intracerebral hemorrhage uh, which continues to be sort of a a conundrum for all of us in neurocritical care and David's really been um, at the forefront if you've been reading critical care medicine uh, neurocritical care neurology you've read his papers um, and so he knows as much or probably more than anyone would ever care to learn about Teg and Rotem and clotting both in vivo and in vitro and so um, I'm really excited to have him come talk to us and uh, David it's, it's all yours.
1: Great, thanks, Nick. That was really nice introduction, and I'm very impressed that you remember all those things about me. Kind of going back, it's been like what almost six years now, or something like that. But it's good to kind of see some familiar faces. And thanks, Andy, for the invitation to uh, share some of the work that we've been doing at the intersection of laboratory medicine, stroke, particularly as it relates to patients that have intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, so, the CME objectives of today's talk are to uh, focus on understanding the pathophysiology dri- driving uh, poor intracerebral hemorrhage outcomes, uh, reviewing the currently uh, implemented diagnostic and treatment approaches for establishing hemostasis in these patients, along with their limitations, and then summarizing novel diagnostic and hemorrhage control treatment approaches that are being investigated in this disease process. <coughs> Excuse me. So, you'll see throughout the talk today that Many of these concepts in intracerebral hemorrhage might have relevant overlap with other types of life-threatening hemorrhages like trauma, so I wanted to try to avoid giving too much of a neurocentric talk and then rather focus on ICH treatment approaches and observations that are uh, translatable to the management of any type of critically ill patient. I don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose for the talk today. However, I am going to be covering topics that were supported by one of these highlighted funding mechanisms. Uh, I know this is a bit atypical, but I did want to start the presentation with my acknowledgement slides to highlight the uh, team and the multidisciplinary collaborations that are providing the backbone of most of the concepts I'm going to be discussing today. Our recent efforts have merged with ongoing uh, ICH cohort studies with a physician scientist research team and laboratory in laboratory and transfusion medicine, which has provided additional tools for us to uh, refine the interpretation of our clinical bedside observations. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, these investigators, Dr. Hode and Spitalnik, along with the multidisciplinary group uh, in the Laboratory of Transfusion Biology, has provided uh, mentorship for me and collaboration opportunities that are needed to highlight that intracerebral hemorrhage patients are particularly vulnerable to uh, best laboratory transfusion medicine practices. So let's start by kind of covering the basics. What exactly is intracerebral hemorrhage? I'm going to be referring to intracerebral hemorrhage as ICH for the rest of the talk. So ICH is defined as a non-traumatic sudden onset of bleeding that occurs in the brain tissue or the cerebral ventricle system, uh, and that's due to a non-traumatic rupture of a blood vessel. Uh, These patients present with acute onset of headache, altered levels of consciousness uh, that is accompanied with or without focal neurological deficits. Uh, So these symptoms are pretty similar to what is seen in ischemic stroke, uh, but they can can be differentiated from ischemic stroke by acute neuroimaging, such as a CT scan, which will identify a collection of blood, uh, which appears bright or hyperdense, rather than a hypodense or dark region on a CT scan that's associated with infarcted brain tissue and ischemic stroke. Uh, So while ICH is the second most common type of stroke, it's by far the deadliest type. Uh, 40% of these patients die, and of these survivors, the vast majority, 75%, will have severe disability. So as a result, uh, ICH is a critical epidemiologic problem as it's the largest driver of morbidity and mortality seen in strokes. Which, as an umbrella diagnosis, is the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. Uh, and there are also problems uh, where ICH is a pervasive uh, has pervasive racial disparities where Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians are groups are more likely to encounter ICH. And when they do encounter it, they encounter it at younger ages. And more, uh, the most concerning thing is that unlike ischemic strokes, the prevalence and outcomes for ICH has not improved over the past two decades. There are no acute treatments that have been shown to improve outcomes for these patients. So, and the long-term morbidity of ICH is primarily driven from the acute hemorrhage volu- volume, and this is dependent on acute processes that relate to the hematoma's direct injury on the underlying brain tissue in the initial hours following ICH. Uh, this is the acute injury process. And then this is paired with downstream inflammatory processes that are triggered from the hematoma breakdown products itself which then lead to secondary brain injury that occurs over the ensuing hours to days after ICH. Because of this bimodal impact on injury, ongoing bleeding, otherwise known as hematoma expansion uh, is the largest acute driver of worse long-term outcomes Uh, Up to 40% of patients that have ICH can go on to encounter ongoing bleeding like this, uh, which is detected on serial neuroimaging. And patients that do encounter hematoma expansion have nearly a four-times increased risk of having poor neurological outcomes at three months. And because the majority of hematoma expansion occurs in the hyperacute hours following ICH, initial efforts focus on rapidly establishing um, uh, uh, hemostasis and preventing hematoma expansion efforts to improve these long-term outcomes. And because ongoing bleeding can occur without any obvious clinical exam changes, serial CT neuroimaging is often performed as a standard of care uh, to be able to visually uh, visually establish uh, evidence that ongoing bleeding has stopped. However, unlike other types of life-threatening hemorrhages, uh, routine serial neuroimaging acquisition has allowed us to appreciate that small amounts of ongoing bleeding or hematoma expansion is bad. Volumes uh, less than a teaspoon worth of hemorrhage can actually go on to have large impacts on long-term outcomes. And this is exemplified by neural image segmentation processing techniques that we use in our lab that have allowed us to precisely quantify minuscule changes of hemorrhage volumes. Here in this top row, you can see a patient who has visually appreciable hematoma expansion that occurs between the first and the second scan. However, in the bottom row, This separate patient did not have evidence of hematoma expansion that was visually obvious. However, when we did segmentation processing, you can see uh, the measurements here that the patient actually did did meet criteria for hematoma expansion. And while this hematoma expansion was small, this was still associated with poor long-term outcome in this specific patient. So the associations of these small hemorrhage volumes with poor outcomes highlights the complex, multifaceted impact that blood and its breakdown products have. Uh, th- these breakdown, process, uh, breakdown products trigger molecular level activation processes that lead to secondary brain injury that's independent from just the mere mass effect of the clot itself. So this is a pretty complex diagram here, but this can be simplified and summarized to again emphasize that additional bleeding triggers downstream inflammation processes that leads to blood brain barrier breakdown, cerebral edema, impaired oops, sorry impaired cerebral oxygen delivery that then results in secondary brain injury. So what this really means on a simplified level is that hemorrhage lesion volume doesn't immediately kill the underlying brain tissue. Uh, This unpublished data from the NIH-funded ROSE study, for which Maryland is enrolling, site for, highlights this specific point. You can see there's three separate patients that have intracerebral hemorrhage here. The middle patient B here has the largest hemorrhage, yet on a special type of MRI imaging called DTI imaging, which assesses the brain connection fibers. You can see that the tract fibers here on both sides, are relatively spared. And this is quantified by something called the uh, fractional anisotropy index. Uh, You can see the number here is relatively intact. And additionally, this patient went on to have good 90-day outcome despite the hemorrhage volume being large. And this is in contrast to patient A, where the hemorrhage volume is small, But you can see here that there is significant tract disruption around the site of the hemorrhage, uh, which then resulted in poor outcomes for this patient. So while hemorrhage induces ongoing injury that's likely to occur over time, the vulnerable brain tissue directly underneath the hemorrhage might still be salvageable in the acute phases after ICH. So in the next section, we're going to review clinical treatment paradigms for hematoma expansion prevention strategies, along with their limitations, um, specifically as it relates to saving vulnerable brain tissue. So given that hematoma expansion is so bad, what can we do to prevent it? The only consistently identifiable, treatable factors that have been associated with hematoma expansion uh, include anticoagulant use and severe hypertension. Antiplatelet use has recently been contested as a relevant risk factor for hematoma expansion, but we'll discuss more on this later in terms of its treatment management strategies. So given these risk factors for hematoma expansion, the initial efforts to treat ICH patients focus on rapidly diagnosing coagulopathy using laboratory diagnostic approaches to then guide relevant hemorrhage control therapies to those specific targets. And concurrently, efforts are made to correct elevated blood pressure to optimize hemostasis. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because blood pressure control is not directly relevant in laboratory transfusion medicine approaches, uh, but it's worth noting that the majority of ICH patients present with very elevated systolic blood pressure on their arrival, and this occurs due to a combination of factors that's driven by baseline hypertension, And along with sympathetic activation from the ICH itself. So it's often unclear whether the patient on arrival has longstanding hypertension who has developed chronic adaptation to these higher blood pressures versus if the high blood pressure on arrival is just a reflection of the sympathetic surge from the bleed itself. Regardless, um, guidelines recommend a somewhat uniform, one-size-fits-all approach that if you present with systolic blood pressure that's high between 150 and 220, the HA guidelines recommend that you acutely lower your blood pressure within one hour to a range of 130 to 150. They think that it's safe and it's reasonable despite kind of the the pretty significant drop that this oftentimes uh, uh, subjects a patient to. So pivoting back to coagulopathy, our current diagnostic approaches for coagulopathy focus on identifying anticoagulation medication effect, as is the largest driver for hematoma expansion. There are very specific institutional uh, uh, and guideline-based rec- uh, reversal recommendations for these easily identifiable coagulopathies, and conventional coagulation assays like the PT, PTT, INR are part of these diagnostic paradigms, and they're used primarily in efforts to assess the severity of anticoagulation to then guide hemorrhage reversal therapies, However, anticoagulant use is only seen in a small minority of ICH patients, only 10%. And separately, the increasing use of DOAX creates anticoagulation effects that aren't detectable using these conventional coagulation assays. Uh, in the majority of ICH patients, uh, sorry, my is freezing here. In the majority of ICH patients uh, that are not taking anticoagulants or with normal conventional coagulation assays, we've identified that 20% of these patients can still go on to encounter hematoma expansion, which reflects uh, a vulnerable patient population that's at risk uh, for under-treating processes that are relevant for hematoma expansion. So this doesn't mean that hematoma expansion in these patients with normal conventional assays are not due to coagulopathy. Rather, this highlights known limitations of currently implemented uh, uh, conventional, coagulation, conventional coagulation assays in detecting coagulopathy that's relevant for ongoing bleeding. So our plasma-based assays like the PT or the PTT, which are highlighted by these stars here, uh, these assess two enzymatic processes, the intrinsic and the intrinsic pathway with platelet count being assessed separately. Uh, But we have to understand that these plasma-based tests were not originally designed to predict bleeding risk. Instead, they were designed to diagnose bleeding conditions from hemophilia, uh, whose coagulopathies are dependent on these intrinsic and extrinsic proteins. Uh, However, there are many other coagulation proteins and processes that are not assessed by the conventional coagulation assays, which are needed for hemostasis. And specifically in ICH, these highlighted specific coagulation protein deficiencies, including factor 13, are not detectable using conventional coagulation assays, yet they've uh, been implicated in not only ICH onset, but with hematoma expansion as well. So furthermore, uh, talking about the limitations of our uh, plasma-based coagulation test, um, we have to consider that These plasma tests remove cells like platelets and red blood cells prior to testing. And by doing so, they focus on quantifying the kinetics of coagulation generated by coagulation factor activation. However, these tests cannot provide a global assessment of platelets, red blood cells, and the protein interactions that are needed to generate, uh, stabilize, and break down clot. So it's not a surprise that outside of patients on vitamin K antagonists, conventional coagulations do not predict hematoma expansion. And given these diagnostic limitations, several empiric hemorrhage control therapies uh, and approaches have been trialed. Uh, Unfortunately, these specific therapies and approaches, each targeting specific coagulation processes that are relevant for hemostasis, like recombinant activated factor 7 and antifibrinolytic agents, tranexamic acid, they've all failed to improve outcomes. And certain therapies like platelet transfusions have even caused harm. So these trials have highlighted that patient selection is critical as hemorrhage control therapies are not without risk. Specifically, some of these therapies have described thrombosis risk, uh, with thrombosis being an independent risk factor uh, for poor ICH outcomes. Uh, We've separately shown here that these downstream thrombotic medical complications occur one week after ICH on average, and this also increases the likelihood of having poor three-month outcome by twofold, and this is independent of ICH volume. Furthermore, ICH patients might be particularly vulnerable to transfusion medicine practices, as the PADGE trial uh, suggested that platelet transfusions for the reversal of antiplatelet medication use appears to increase the likelihood of death or severe neurological disability compared to standard of care. So, thus, with this type of data considered, it's likely that tailored approaches are more likely to be effective in establishing hemostasis while limiting unnecessary treatments and mitigating harmful side effects. However, to do this, we need to improve the ways that we diagnose coagulopathy, Uh, and this is needed to effectively assess coagulopathy that's relevant specifically for hematoma expansion. This will allow us to improve selection for who should receive uh, the therapies and also what therapies should be given. So for the last section of the talk, uh, I'm going to be reviewing some evidence supporting the consideration of alternative diagnostic approaches for coagulopathy, Uh, which have already been implemented in other types of life threatening bleeding, as well as novel transfusion-based therapeutic considerations for ICH patients. So while current diagnostic strategies rely on conventional coagulation assays, which, like we talked about before, separate and test individual uh, coagulation components that are relevant for hemostasis, uh, contemporary viscoelastic assays like Teg and Rotem assess a more comprehensive panel of relevant coagulation components using whole blood. So this allows an assessment of all these interactions that are necessary uh, of all these different components for clot formation across multiple different stages. Uh, thus, viscoelastic assays provide a more global assessment of the coagulation that's relevant for hemostasis and can provide these results at the bedside as a point of care test. Viscoelastic assays, as you all know, um, have become the standard of care in many trauma and perioperative hemorrhage management paradigms, and evidence suggests that viscoelastic assays. Uh, In these settings, improves transfusion practice, hemostasis, and even clinical outcomes, uh, which appears to be particularly uh, 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 predominant in traumatic patients uh, and also with traumatic ICH patients who encounter brain bleeding. So the literature might seem to support that the study of viscoelastic assay use in spontaneous, non-traumatic ICH patients is warranted. Uh, The use of viscoelastic assays in these types of patients is pretty novel, um, yet early adopters have identified that viscoelastic assays can detect impaired coagulation kinetics in patients that encounter hematoma expansion. And this coagulapathy, specifically the impaired coagulation kinetics, uh, are not seen using conventional coagulation assays or attributable to anticoagulant use. But these initial observational studies were small um, and were unable to address specific patient subgroups that are now increasingly recognized have very different pathophysiologies and baseline characteristics that can impact coagulation. Uh, An example of this is deep and low bar ICH, uh, as these are the most common types of uh, ICH subgroups. And while they're often studied and treated uniformly, it's increasingly recognized that these different types of bleeds have very, uh, they're very separate in terms of their uh, pathophysiologies and outcomes. Uh, They have known different genetic underpinnings uh, and underlying small vessel disease pathophysiologies. And these differences extend to differences in baseline demographics, disease characteristics, and clinical outcomes. Specifically, deep intracerebral hemorrhage patients uh, have worse clinical outcomes uh, compared to low bar ICH patients, despite them being younger, having less comorbidities, and having smaller baseline ICH volumes. So we've identified that these differences appear to extend to both hematoma expansion and coagulation. We've consistently identified across multiple different cohorts that deep ICH patients will encounter hematoma expansion up to 60% more commonly than uh, the lower ICH patient counterparts. And this hematoma expansion difference appears to mediate uh, deep ICH patients' known relationship with worse outcomes. And separately, we've identified that impaired coagulation kinetics Using viscoelastic assays in deep compared to low bar ICH exist. Um, this uh, suggests a relative coagulopathy in deep ICH patients. You can see here that the coagulation kinetics appear to be impaired and slower in deep ICH patients. And we were able to see this phenomenon across two different ICH cohorts that utilize two different types of viscoelastic assay testing platforms, Rotem and Teg. And again, these differences were not identifiable using conventional coagulation assays or attributable to anticoagulant use. And the striking thing was that these intergroup coagulation differences on viscoelastic assays uh, were clinically large and significant. There was nearly a 60 second difference between these two groups. And these differences were nearly two times greater than uh, what's been described in trauma patients, uh, specifically amongst those that require and do not require massive transfusion protocol. So, separately, in low-bar ICH patients, um, which is thought to be driven by uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, uh, a specific type of small vessel disease, there are separate reports that these have very different patterns of hematoma expansion. And it's positive that these patients have separate fibrinolytic processes that are relevant in the disease formation and progression. Uh, It's known from trauma that fibrinolysis can be detectable using viscoelastic assays. However, it's still not clear whether low-bar cerebral amyloid ICH patients can similarly exhibit this type of coagulopathy uh, seen on uh, VHA testing. So taken together, these findings appear to suggest a potential role of viscoelastic assays in the diagnostic strategies of ICH coagulopathy. However, it still remains unclear whether viscoelastic assays uh, and guided approaches in ICH have the potential to yield improved outcomes. And this has been recognized as a critical knowledge gap to address by large national societies like the AHA. And additionally, it appears that coagulopathies differ between the most common subgroups of ICH, deep and lower ICH, that necessitate closer looks at these specific subgroups and assessments whether these patients should be treated differently. So while our group and others are looking to investigate this question, we hope that statements like these will stimulate other centers to investigate this topic as larger networks outside of our own will ultimately be needed to effectively assess these types of aims. So while efforts are underway to improve laboratory diagnostic approaches for coagulopathy and ICH, uh, which will help with patient selection, a a question still remains as, what can we do to improve the therapies that we're currently giving? And this remains pertinent from a platelet transfusion standpoint, as studies have shown that platelet dysfunction worsens clinical outcomes, Um, and this is largely thought to be due to the fact that uh, platelet dysfunction can also uh, worsen your odds of having hematoma expansion, uh, thus mediating its effect on on poor clinical outcomes. And it's estimated that nearly 20% of Americans take an aspirin, putting them at risk for platelet dysfunction. Um, and the prevalence of aspirin use in ICH patients is estimated to be even higher at 30 to 40%. So it remains unclear as to how platelet dysfunction should be treated in these patients. Um, and this is because uh, platelet transfusions, while historically being seen as a reversal agent of choice for antiplatelet medication related coagulopathy, um, this, has, this practice has largely become questioned since the release of the PATCH trial. Again, like we talked about before, patients that received platelet transfusions for this indication were more likely to encounter death or severe neurological disability. And so while the reasons for this harm was unclear from the study, interestingly, these trial investigators had a subgroup analysis of patients that had uh, serial neuroimaging, and they found that patients that received platelet transfusions actually had paradoxically uh, worse hemostasis. These patients had greater hemorrhage expansion compared to patients that did not receive platelets. So this has prompted investigations into alternative transfusion-sparing pharmacotherapies like desmopressin, given its reported benefit on augmenting platelet function. Here you can see that desmopressin causes a a decrease in the actual platelet dysfunction that's seen on uh, platelet functional assays. However, these studies have only recently begun recruiting uh, from a clinical trial standpoint, and this clinical benefit still remains unknown. Thus, platelet transfusions will likely continue to be a part of ICH treatment paradigms for the time being, Uh, even though the HA guidelines have created new statements this year recommending against the use of platelet transfusions for antiplatelet medication reversal based on the patch trial that we just talked about, they do still continue to recommend Platelet transfusions for ICH patients for antiplatelet reversal if they're scheduled for emergent neurosurgery. Um, these recommendations are based off a of single center study uh, that suggests uh, platelet transfusions benefit in this specific setting. Yet, it's worth highlighting that the platelet transfusion product that's being used by this Chinese group here. Um, appears to be cryopreserved platelets. This is something that we currently do not use in the United States. So it's unclear and unlikely that the hemostatic uh, therapeutic efficacy of cryo or cold stored platelets are similar to what we use here in the United States, which are room temperature ones. So this raises pretty large concerns over the generalizability of this single center study uh, finding to how we practice here in the United States. Additionally, it's often difficult to predict which ICH patients will necessitate surgery. Um, with some recent evidence that was released at the Neurosurgical Conference this year, there's potential evidence that surgical clot evacuation for certain types of ICH patients is beneficial. So this may change clinical practice at certain centers across the United States, um, and certain centers may become more aggressive in uh, taking patients earlier for surgery, so on for the time being, it's probably going to be unpredictable how many patients actually need surgery. And as a result, uh, practitioners are likely going to continue platelet transfusion practice uh, for aspirin reversal, um, given this indication. So because this is the case, we need to understand uh, why platelet transfusions can be harmful. So we sought to investigate this question, initially just focusing on ABO transfusion practices. Uh, So while platelets are known to express blood group carbohydrate moieties on their cell surface, Platelet transfusions, they're not required to be ABO matched given uh, historic safety data. However, increasing literature seems to suggest that mismatched ABO platelet products can associate with decreased transfusion efficacy, meaning that if you get a mismatched platelet unit, specifically a major ABO incompatible platelet unit, you won't get an adequate platelet increase. And also more concerningly, there's a potential association of mortality with receiving a major ABO incompatible unit. So as a result, uh, with collaborations with our transfusion biology group, we assessed this specific question in ICH patients. Uh, we looked at ICH patients pre-patch trial between 2009 and 2016, and we were able to identify 125 patients who received a, a single acute platelet transfusion within 24 hours for hemorrhage control purposes. Uh, and amongst these patients, we saw that major ABO incompatible platelet units were given pretty frequently. They're given up to 40% of our patients. And getting an incompatible, a major incompatible platelet unit uh, increased the, the likelihood of having poor platelet recovery, meaning that these patients did not increase their platelet count. And in the majority of these cases, patients that received a major ABO incompatible unit, they actually dropped their platelet count. And then the more concerning thing is that we identified that patients receiving this type of a platelet unit had an increased odds of mortality. And the effect size from our study was quite surprising as there was a 250% increase out of death if you received an AVO incompatible unit. Um, and frankly, I'm not really sure why this worse outcome was seen, especially to the scale. We did do additional analyses and on a superficial level, it doesn't seem to be related to impaired hemostasis. But again, it's a little bit unclear as to why this signal was there. And obviously, because this was only a small single center study, there was a huge limitation with the generalizability of um, our findings. So we performed a follow-up study that leverages the NHLBI-funded multi-center recipient epidemiologic donor transfusion network uh, during a similar time period of 2013 and 2016. Again, this is all pre-patch trial. And this study focused on any hospitalization patient rather than just ICH patients only, and they identified 21,000 platelet transfusion encounters. And while there was not a clear association of major AVL-incompatible platelet transfusion on mortality in the overall cohort, when assessing specific diagnostic subgroups, we again identified that patients that have intracerebral hemorrhage who received a major avl compatible unit, uh, they were more likely to encounter hospital mortality compared to patients that received a compatible unit. And this was in 1,000 uh, intracerebral hemorrhage patient encounters. So it remains to be determined what is driving uh, platelet transfusion practices now, post-patch trial. And whether there are other transfusion uh, characteristics that impact ICH outcomes and why ABO incompatibility is causing these outcomes. So as a result, we're sharing an ongoing study called the ADAPT-ICH study within the REDS 4 network to explore these gaps in to uh, to identify ways to improve platelet transfusion outcome practices uh, in these patients. So on a translational level, uh, work is ongoing in our lab with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Stone and her group to establish a novel murine model of platelet transfusion. This hasn't been established before, um, but this model is near uh, implementation. So what they're doing is they're essentially creating a blood bank of platelet units out of uh, donor mice. Um, and we're going to see whether we can implement this to see whether tr- uh, transfusion practice preparation uh, can impact the efficacy in hemostasis. And with the ability to fluorescently tag these cells, we aim specifically to track and administer platelet units to see if it's able to go where it's supposed to go in hemorrhage models, and in our case, ICH. And Finally, uh, we'll review evidence supporting the evidence of red blood cell transfusions in ICH care. Uh, given that secondary brain injury processes after ICH are live in, uh, dr- uh, largely driven by impaired cerebral oxygenation, it makes intuitive sense that red blood cells play a relevant role in ICH outcomes. And this concept has been supported by an abundance of observational literature that identified that baseline anemia in hospitalized ICH patients are strong predictors of worse long-term outcomes. And in these studies, it appears that at hemoglobin levels below 12 to 13, uh, this is where poor outcomes uh, begin to be seen. And this represents a potential gap in best transfusion practice because current guidelines recommend that restrictive RBC transfusion thresholds less than seven should be implemented for hospitalized patients. And these are levels that are well below the hemoglobin thresholds that we've identified to associate with poor outcomes. And there's a concern, obviously, there that these restrictive red blood cell transfusion thresholds are not the appropriate uh, practice for brain injured patients who depend on optimal cerebral oxygen delivery to prevent secondary brain injury. And because cardiac output is often restricted iatrogenically from us in the acute settings after ICH uh, due to our aggressive uh, elevated blood pressure correction, Oxygen delivery to the brain then becomes primarily dependent on the, cere- uh, sorry, the arterial oxygen content of the blood, which is driven primarily from hemoglobin concentration, unless there's a concurrent uh, lung hy- hypoxia issue that's happening. So using invasive brain tissue oxygenation monitoring, it's been shown that anemia impairs oxygen carrying capacity of blood and thus it's delivery to the brain. And then conversely, uh, red blood cell transfusions improve cerebral oxygenation as well. And these studies have primarily been done in acute brain injury patients like subarachnoid hemorrhage and trauma, uh, but no such studies yet exist to show that this type of thing occurs in ICH-specific brain injury. However, that being said, it's largely positive that the relationship of anemia with poor ICH ICH outcomes are similarly due to this specific mechanism. Uh, these aggregate findings in TBI and subarach uh, hemorrhage patients um, have resulted in ongoing studies that are assessing the potential utility of uh, liberal RBC transfusion approaches in these types of non-ICH brain injury patients, and some have shown even potential clinical benefits of cerebral oxidative guided therapies. However, further work is needed to assess whether similar, similar liberal RBC transfusion approaches are warranted in ICH as the mechanisms for anemia's relationship with poor ICH outcomes still remain unclear. So we are actively pursuing this type of research in our group, um, assessing how hemoglobin concentrations of red blood cell transfusion impacts through oxygen delivery, specifically in ICH patients. And this case highlights some of our ongoing work. Um, this particular ICH patient had a left-sided ICH and had expected deficits of right-sided weakness and aphasia, given kind of the location of the hemorrhage close to language center in the cortical spinal tracts. This patient also had concurrent anemia, which ultimately dropped to a nadir of 6.8, which required uh, required a red blood cell transfusion. And during this time, the patient was on NEAR's cerebral oxygenation monitoring, and you can see that the patient had impaired NEAR's values over the left hemisphere uh, before transfusion. However, following the transfusion, the cerebral oxygenation was noted to improve, and the patient actually surprisingly began to start following commands and moving the right side 24 hours after the transfusion. So I think this finding builds upon the overarching concept that brain tissue that underlies the hemorrhage may not be irreversibly damaged and can be salvaged in certain scenarios. However, it's too early to say that the clinical improvement that we noted in this specific case uh, was caused by the transfusion, Uh, but we hope to continue to build upon these observations to identify uh, anemia and red blood cell transfusion's impact on clinical outcomes. And this becomes relevant as there might be other mechanisms outside of impaired cerebral oxygen delivery that drives anemia's relationship with poor ICH outcomes. Uh, Alternative data suggests that patients with low hemoglobin have larger hemorrhage volumes and also have greater hematoma expansion risk, with hematoma expansion mediating hemoglobin's uh, known relationship with poor ICH outcomes. Uh, Lower red blood cell concentrations are well known to cause bleeding complications in other types of patient populations uh, with a so-called anemic coagulopathy, Um, and this is thought to be driven by impaired radial displacement of platelets as in these low red blood cell concentration states. Uh, This prevents adequate uh, radial displacements of the platelets and subsequent platelet activation that then leads to impaired hemostasis. So it's possible that these same mechanisms are at play in our observational findings. Yet to see if we could characterize this anemic coagulopathy, we propose a study to look at the relationship of hemoglobin uh, to viscoelastic hemostatic assay tracings uh, like Rotum and Tag in ICH patients. And given that viscoelastic assays utilize a whole blood sample and don't remove the red blood cells, in theory, one should be able to assess whether red blood cell concentration has a relative impact on viscoelastic assay testing results. So we went into this study with a hypothesis that anemic ICH patients would have hypocoagulable viscoelastic tracings, meaning that they had weaker clot strength. Uh, We even applied for a foundational grant in the laboratory medicine transfusion community to perform the study. However, uh, this specific comment and critique from the Grant Reviewing Committee was raised that this has been studied before in non-ICU patients, uh, which have identified artifactual effects that as the hemoglobin drops, your viscoelastic assays paradoxically become more hypercoagulable, not hypocoagulable. And this has been shown multiple times in non-ICU patients and even um, in animals, so this was thought to be a, a relevant pre-analytical confounder and an in vitro artifact That's driven by the fact that the viscoelastic testing cup has less red blood cells in it, and then as a result, it has a higher plasma to red blood cell ratio, uh, thus creating an environment where the the lower amount of red blood cell interference allows uh, the clotting mechanism to appear hypercoagulable by the machine. So this was obviously the first time that I'd heard of this artifact. And despite this issue, the reviewers were actually pretty flexible and ultimately funded the study because to, to our knowledge, the study had not been done in an ICU patient population who received specific treatments to guide these tests. So what we did in our specific study was assess whether hemoglobin concentrations impact viscoelastic assays by looking at three different cohorts. We had two separate cohorts of adult ICH patients uh, that use separate viscoelastic testing platforms, TEG and Rotem. And then we had a third confirmation cohort of surgical ICH patients that used Rotem. Um, and we included patients that had available baseline hemoglobin and concurrent viscoelastic assay testing. We specifically excluded traumatic ICH um, and patients that had received hemorrhage control control therapy prior to viscoelastic assay testing. We also excluded patients that had a history of anticoagulant use or evidence of coagulopathy on conventional coagulation assays, really as a way to just primarily uh pin down if there was a, an association with hemoglobin uh, with the assay itself and not have to deal with confounders. So we then performed corla- cor- uh, correlation linear regression models to assess this relationship, and we uniformly identified across all three cohorts of different, IC- uh, different ICU disease populations and across fiscal assay testing platforms that patients with hemoglobin levels that were low had greater clotting characteristics. And also these same patients that have lower hemoglobin had shorter clotting kinetics, uh, overall giving kind of a sense that the patients that are anemic have hypercoagulable clotting characteristics, similar to kind of uh, the, the critiques that we received in the reviewer comments before. So to, provo- uh, to prove that this was in fact an in vitro artifact, uh, we performed a separate prospective in vitro study from four ICH patients and three healthy controls. So what we did here is we modified and diluted each patient's blood sample to four different hemoglobin concentrations from a single blood draw. We uh, similarly identified that as we modified a patient's blood sample down to lower hemoglobin levels, their tracing would become more progressively hypercoagulable with progressively faster coagulation kinetics and progressively stronger clotting strength tracing assays. So similar to what's been hypothesized in prior studies, we think that this artifact is due to uh, lower red blood cell to plasma concentration ratios in the testing cuvette uh, that allows Uh, less interference to the coagulation kinetic and clotting processes. So we were ultimately left with the answer that viscoelastic assays cannot detect the well-described phenomenon of anemic coagulopathy. However, we were also left with the conundrum that um, hemoglobin appears to be a pretty significant pre-analytical variable that could impact uh, viscoelastic assay tracings. So based on these results, one can envision a scenario where a bleeding patient who becomes anemic might have viscolastic assay tracings that might be artifactually normal when in fact they're truly in a mild hypocoagulable state. So this this could in theory lead to undertreatment under of anemic patients who are receiving viscoelastic assay guided therapies. Um, and furthermore, it's unclear, but to be honest, I think it's still relatively doubtful that this artifact had anything to do with the outcome differences that we're seeing between these two major viscoelastic assay guided resuscitation trials and trauma, the UC Denver group identified a clear mortality benefit, whereas the followed by tactic trial did not. Um, You know, it's tough to say whether anemia differences between these two groups had anything anything to do with these differences. It is notable, though, that the free randomization RBC transfusion paradigms were very different between these two uh, trial cohorts. Uh, But I think a separate fact is this artifact becomes more important to consider not only in the clinical management of patients, but in the use of viscoelastic assays and observational studies, as, as viscoelastic assays have become increasingly used to study the coagulation milieu, for safe uh, related to thromboinflammatory states, whether it be COVID versus uh, another type of disease process. Um, and these are patients that concurrently us- usually have an anemia of inflammation, so something worth considering. Uh, these findings do suggest that. Uh, it, We should be considering a potential call to the manufacturer to create a correction factor for hemoglobin level, as this would be helpful for us, both in the clinical and observational settings. And it's unclear whether this is going to be of interest to, like, TAG and Rotem manufacturers. However, it's notable that in the most recent 510K pre-market notification for the recent Rotem Sigma device that was just recently approved in the United States, it looks like they, too, identified similar tracing artifacts related to red blood cell concentrations, albeit this is to, like, a milder degree than what we saw. So given these laboratory and medical confounders, disentangling anemia's causal effect on coagulopathy that leads to hematoma expansion has proven initially really difficult for us in human ICH studies. So as a result, in parallel over the last couple of years, we've worked on developing a reductionist mirror model of ICH and hematoma expansion that uses a a stereotactic injection of collagenase uh, and then serial neuroimaging, uh, in vivo imaging in these mice to be able to capture ICH onset and then its growth over time. Uh, After a lot of Weeks and troubleshooting and a lot of tears, we've created a small animal model whose ICH characteristics uh, look to replicate what's seen in humans. um, And the expansion patterns that we see in these mice that have ICH appear to reflect a similar time course as what's seen in humans. You can see here the primary burden of hematoma expansion occurs in the initial hours in our mouse model, which reflects what's seen in humans as well. So we've recently combined this model with two separate models of anemia. Uh, The top row here is showing our model of uh, Anti tr 119 induced anemia, which is essentially a rapid onset of anemia that occurs within three days. This is similar kinetics to what you would see in anemia uh, for an ICU patient, uh, ICU patient that develops during their hospitalization stay. And then we have a second model of anemia that we use, which is an iron deficiency CHOW model that takes about two months to develop. It's a chronic uh, iron deficiency anemia model. And in both of these models that we do after we induce ICH, it does look like our prelim data suggests that anemic mice encounter hematoma expansion more frequently. So this does suggest a potential causal role of anemia in our human observations. However, we're still going to need to investigate a couple more things to clarify the phenomenon that we're seeing in these studies. And finally, we're going to ultimately aim to pair this platform with a murine blood banking model, red blood cell transfusion model that's been established in the laboratory transfusion biology Uh, And using this platform, we hope to see whether these red blood cell transfusions versus other types of treatment targets can improve outcomes, uh, given what appears to be anemia's bimodal uh, impact on ICH outcomes. So, in conclusion, ICH management strategies necessitate strategies to optimize hemostasis and cerebral oxygen delivery. We need to improve the way that we diagnose coagulopathy uh, in these patients and we need to improve the way that we give therapies. Uh, Finally, and most importantly, ICH patients appear to be vulnerable to transfusion medicine or practice approaches, and further work is needed at the intersection of transfusion medicine and stroke to fill critical gaps in knowledge that will likely uh, lead to improved treatment approaches. Our overarching hope is that we can leverage this multimodal approach team and translational platform to be able to gain insights, learn new mechanisms, and learn new experimental techniques, which will likely create to be honest, more questions than answers initially, but we hope that these will allow us to make strides towards uh, bringing new approaches back to the bedside to ultimately improve patient outcomes. With that, I'll say thank you and take this time for any questions anybody might have.